consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass, its flowers fall off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, a rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to all those who love him. Good morning. Good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, we're in James chapter 1. How many of you recognize the opening line to this great story? I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. Some of the finest prose since Tale of Two Cities, right? When I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on a skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be... A terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Of course, that is the opening line from the children's book, Alexander and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Things don't get better, do they? At breakfast, he says, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia, he says. What a great book. We can all relate with Alexander. We've all had those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, and we seem to be having one collectively, as American's New York Times editorial said, are we, asked, are we living in the post-happiness world? Everyone is stressed out and angry, and there's no shortage of reasons why. I read recently the World Happiness Report, reporting that America, in America, happiness is on the decline. Among all nations, we rank 16th in happiness in the world. That wouldn't be so bad, except that it ranks us behind Germany. Yeah, they kind of did a horrible thing in the World War thing. That ranks us behind Canada. How can we be behind Canada? and even behind Australia, proving that Alexander has been right all along. Maybe we all ought to move to Australia. Most popular course ever taught in Yale history, I read, it was offered in 2017. It was called Psychology and the Good Life. Nearly 
25% of Yale undergraduates enlisted in the course. Lori Santos, the professor who teaches the course, says that she tries to teach students how to be happier and to live more satisfying lives. She says that what we've taught our students brings happiness, better grades, uh, uh, important internships, higher paying jobs is totally wrong. Then she added, what they need to do is move to Australia. No, she didn't really say that. (laughs) Isn't it interesting though, by contrast, Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and crucified would look at his disciples and say, peace, my peace, I leave with you. Because he had peace. He was at peace and able to give it. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, how we can live in the richest nation in the world in a time with all the advances of education and technology and science and psychology and entertainment, and yet, We are so strapped by our unhappiness. Today we're beginning a three-week series of messages. We're going to talk about the three of the biggest challenges that we all face in life. It's inspired because I was thinking about if you're leading somebody to Christ, you're probably wondering, okay, I've, I've led somebody to Christ. How do I help them know what to expect next? And I got to thinking about James chapter 1. We're just going to cover the first chapter of James. And now James deals with three tests that everybody faces. Tests of troubles, tests of temptation, tests of transformation. How do we change? Everybody wants to change. Some people pass the test victoriously. Others, not so much. In Christ, we can have victory. How do we do that? We begin in the first, with the first uh, part of the first chapter talking about troubles. Now, it's interesting that James introduces himself in this book by calling himself James, a servant of God and the Lord Christ Jesus. That just kind of sets up everything. He could have, of all the different ways, how do you identify yourself? If you were James, how would you have identified yourself? He could have identified himself as the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem, which he was, argumentatively arguably. He could have identified himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He could have pointed out that Mary was his mother too. But instead, he identifies himself as a doulos, a slave of Christ. And the rest of the letter of James essentially explains what's it look like to live as a slave of Christ, victoriously as a slave of Christ. What's a mature follower of Christ look like? And it begins here by talking about trials. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Does that grab your attention? He says, troubles are opportunities for joy. That's not the way people normally think. That's not the way we normally feel, but they are. In Christ, How do we face troubles with joy? So they produce Jesus effect in us. I want to talk about f- probably four ways, four lessons we learned from James. I actually did two 
um, devotions on this that are, you can find online as well, dealing with other things that, that I've cut out of the, of the message today. So if you're a glutton for punishment and want more, you can find it online in the devotions. Let's pray together before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. We thank you that you will do a work right now that is fresh in this room, that you've prepared each of us for your word, that your Holy Spirit is wanting to speak to us. And we would say, Lord, your servants are listening. Through Christ we pray these things. Amen. The first thing James makes clear is that troubles will come, anticipate them. Do you appreciate how definitive he is here? Consider it great joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Not if, but you will, when you do. I got to thinking and preparing this message. It's kind of like if you're sending a child in the Marines. You don't say to them, Man, what a great time to have an all-expenses-paid vacation to Paris Island. I hear the beaches are beautiful down there this time of year. You know, Now, there's a chance, maybe, that somebody's going to raise their voice, or they may get you out of bed earlier than they want, or, or they, may not, they may make your life a little bit more difficult. There, that may happen. That's not what you say. You say, boot camp is probably going to be the most difficult time in your life. Endure boy, it's going to make a mature, it is going to mature you like nothing else. That's what James does here. He says, consider pure joy because the testing of your faith is going to develop maturity. There's wisdom in here for parents today, isn't there? You know, somebody has noted that what parents most want, two things parents most want today for their kids are for their kids to be happy and for their kids to fit in. They don't want their kids to be unsafe. And the result of that is we can be overly protective. Um, in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, the authors who are not Christians point out that this overprotection of children has led to a generation that can't handle disagreement very well. They, they write, a culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger. You've heard people say, you know, they're doing violence to me because of what they said. That words now are violence. Is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. That's James 1. We need these things to make us mature. The authors continue. Instead, we need to tell our kids... From time to time in the years to come, I hope that you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope that you will be lonely from time to time so that you won't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, from time to time, so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in your life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. Isn't that good? And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure it is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored 
so you'll know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you'll have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they say, they are going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. That's James 1, 2 through 4. You're going to go through difficult times. Expect them. Whether they grow you or not will depend on your ability to consider great joy. I'm, I, I am reminded of C.S. Lewis. Um, to be honest with you, I forget which book. But he says, um, although C.S. Lewis, you probably wrote it in several different books. As he, tends, anyway, um, he, he said, if you expect this world to be like a vacation, you'll be severely disappointed. But if you expect this world to be a battlefield, that is a proving ground, a testing ground to make you stronger and to prepare you for an eternal world, it's not such a bad place. But it's no place to call home. That's what James is saying here. Consider pure joy whenever you face trials of many kind because God is up to something more than our happiness. He's up to our holiness that leads to happiness. Troubles are inevitable. Learn to lean on Jesus. Notice he uses the word various trials. Whenever you face, experience various trials, the word there is the word from which we get, the Greek word there is the word from which we get our word polka dot, meaning diverse or multiple colored. We experience different levels of suffering. Some of our problems are going to be like uh, door dings. Some of our Troubles are going to be like a head-on collision. Some of our troubles are going to be like a blister, others like gangrene. One person may lose a wallet, another person lose entire life savings. Some of our troubles are going to be like missing a day of, that we've looked forward to because a rainstorm has come. Some of our troubles are going to be like death of a dream because something devastating, devastating has happened. There come various levels and in various ways. You may have a broken back or a broken spirit. You may have childhood diabetes. My dad had his mother killed in a car accident when he was 12. Some struggle with eating disorders, others with starvation. They don't have enough food. Some troubles come through teenage rebellion. Um, some because a teenager was abused by an adult. I know that whenever I speak, I'm talking to people who've hurt deeply. Um, some more than others. It's not your fault. It's happened to you. It's hard. I find Jesus' words helpful in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he does that whole passage on don't worry. And he ends it by saying, don't worry about tomorrow. And you kind of expect him to say, because tomorrow will be a better day. 
You know, wouldn't that be the positive thing to say? But he doesn't. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Tomorrow's going to have trouble too. So let tomorrow's trouble take care of tomorrow kind of thing. But he, he prefaces the whole thing by saying, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll take care of all these things will be added to you as well. 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, Peter writes his letters, both of them, to Christians who are dispersed by persecution. In the fourth chapter, verse 12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. Now, some of these people had had friends, certainly um, imprisoned, tortured. They'd seen people die. Fiery ordeals among you to test you. As if something unusual were happening to you. That's what I do. So I'm like, why is this happening to me? You know, this shouldn't happen to me. No, he says, it's not unusual. Instead, rather than being surprised, rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. That's maturity. I'm not there yet. I want to get there sometime. But he's like, God's glory is going to be revealed. First of all, when you are faithful and you face him face and you see him face to face at the end of time, you will know it was worth it all. There was nothing that I sacrificed for God that wasn't worth it. But his glory being revealed, his glory is also, it's not just eternity by and by, it's also his character in us. His glory is revealed as we become, as he shapes us to become more like Christ. In this world, you will have trouble. Lean on Christ. First, um, John 16:33. I find great comfort. Jesus said, I've told you these things that in me you might have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. But, and that's the key. Expect it and anticipate it, but realize it's in him. Jesus, find peace in me. Not in a bottle. Not in the world. Not in taking control. Not in fleeing. Not in running. Not in quitting. Not in money. But in me, in my word, my example, my people, my presence, my strength. The arm of the, the, arm of the flesh will fail you, Je Jeremiah 17.5 says. But Christ never will. Second, most trouble fuels growth. Rejoice. I say most troubles. Sometimes people are like, that whole, they love the Nietzsche quote, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No. Sometimes, um, George Mark Elliott, professor I went to school, used to say, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. Um, the same troubles that cause some to endure and to grow and to learn patience from God cause others to become brittle and bitter and to give up. So James writes, consider it great joy. What's the difference? Whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so you may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. You know the difference sometimes between people who are really blessed by God long-term and those who aren't? Sometimes it's not ability, it's not knowledge, it's not even, in a sense, character. It's just the ability, it's the refusal to quit. You know, you just determine to endure when others would bail. Simon, Simone Veal, the... A uh, French philosopher one time said, and I don't think she was a Christian, but she said, um, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. God is up to something. 
Kim Fook. This picture is probably a picture that you're familiar with if you've lived very long. A uh, picture taken from in 1972, Vietnam. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning picture, AP picture. Um, shows her running down the street after a napalm attack, the Vietnam War. You may not be aware that today Kim Phuc thanks God for that moment. Let that sink in. She tells people, you've seen my picture a thousand times. I'm a nine-year-old running down a puddled roadway, arms outstretched, naked, shrieking in pain and fear. The dark corridor of a the, the dark contour of napalm cloud billowing in the distance. Those bombs have brought me immeasurable pain. The emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure, she says. As a child, she grew up in a religion called Kaudai. She said that it did not satisfy her. She couldn't she just didn't find the answer she was longing for. In 1982, she found herself in a library in Saigon where she found a Bible and started reading it and discovered Jesus. Two things she noted about Jesus. First of all, in Kaudai, they taught that there were many gods. She said she knows about Jesus, that Jesus made the straightforward claim, I am the way to God. There is no other way to God but me, John 14, 6. Second, she noticed Jesus suffered. He had been mocked, tortured, killed. She wondered, why would he endure these things if he were not God? I'd never been exposed to this side of Jesus, the wounded one, the one who bore scars. I came to believe that he really was who he said he was. And most important to me, he really would do all that he promised in his word. Perhaps he could help me make sense of my pain and at last come to terms with my scars. Nearly half a century has passed since I found myself running, frightened, naked, and in pain down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors of that day, but my faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who hurt and scarred me. Today, she concludes, I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road. How can you be thankful for a napalmed road? Because the physical and emotional sufferings led her to Christ, to know God, to know forgiveness, to know hope, to know power. Can you thank God in everything, even your napalm road? We all have them. The apostle Paul did. He called it a thorn. Second Corinthians 12. Paul describes how he had these great revelations from God and that they had the temptation to make him proud. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. He said that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Paul says, I thank God for my napalm road. Do you realize how counterculture that is? Today, we look at people, and this is the point that we don't have time to make, but James makes it later. We look at people who are rich and have life easy, and we call them privileged. The Bible looks at people who are weak and have been persecuted, and they call them privileged. The Apostle Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses and insults and hardships. Everybody has a thorn. Maybe you have more than one. Napalm Road. Can you thank God for them? You know how it works. <laughs> have you ever prayed for patience? Have you ever dared to pray, God, make me patient? It's a stupid prayer. <laughs> you know, because when, he doesn't make your life easy. All of a sudden, he puts you in situations that's kind of like, it's like all the dumbest drivers in northern Virginia are all of a sudden driving around you. And he puts you in meetings. So it's like, oh, Lord, I've asked you to make me patient. Or, Lord, help me to overcome my anger. Lord, I just, I've been irritable lately. Don't, Lord, I want to be at peace. And you know what's going to happen. He doesn't make you, he doesn't treat you like a princess or a king, right? He just, ah, all those times. I've been told this. I've not experienced it personally, but I. <laughs> Think about what God does in your marriage. What's God's purpose in your marriage? Say, oh, so that I feel love. Yeah, he wants you to experience love. So I can have companionship. Yeah, he wants you to have companionship. But God wants us to be happy. And you know how he makes us happy? By making us holy. And you know what he uses our marriages for? To make us holy. And so we find ourselves in those situations in our marriages where it's like God is teaching me patience. God is teaching me discipline. God is teaching me to listen. God is teaching, is trying, I should say is trying to, I'm not saying he's accomplishing, is trying to teach me those things. Now, husbands and wives, okay, the next time you're in an argument and your spouse is saying you're a thorn in her side or his side, you know, don't say, I'm Jesus' answer to prayer for you, you know. <laughs> Just call me a blessing for you, know, like, you know. You, you, you worn out from responsibility, it's a thorn. Satan says, quit. God says, the arm of the flesh will fail you. Reach out to me. Some of us get discouraged more easily than others. I don't think my dad's ever had a discouraging day in his life. He probably had one or two. And despite all the stuff that he's gone through, others of us, I mean, me, I can get discouraged so easily. Do you hear God say, come to me, all here are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Now, I will confess I've never had a flat tire on 66, and my first thought was immediately, hallelujah, I'm so blessed by God. I wonder how God's going to teach me today through this. But, but, one sign that we're growing up is in the midst of trials, we have this quiet confidence. I've seen God work in my pain in the past. I've seen God blessed through the trials in the past, I know he's going to give victory now. I know he's at work in me today. First Peter, again, back to First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. 
You rejoice in this, not just later, but in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. There's that various again. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which the perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Third lesson. Passing the test of troubles demands wisdom. Pray. Verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. Isn't that great? Generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, somehow I think it's a rhetorical question. Anybody here not lack wisdom? Yeah, I lack wisdom. We know there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge has to do with facts. Wisdom has to do with application and action. Husbands, knowledge is knowing how you could respond at the moment. Wisdom is knowing not to. <laughs> Wisdom is, is godly knowledge applied in godly action. And when storms hit in life, we need more than knowledge. We need wisdom. Think about, think about the leaders, the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament so well and they screamed, we have the law. They knew the law, and then they crucified Jesus. They had knowledge, but they lacked wisdom. Under pressure, people lose their perspective. That's why um, if anybody has lost a spouse, we tell them, don't make a big decision next year. That's why lawyers are told, don't represent yourself in court, right? Uh, right? The lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client, they say. Past the test of trials, James says, ask God for wisdom. He'll give it generously. Now that is, I was, I was thinking about this again last night as I was going through this thing, and that is so, so much a kind of a duh, of course. But the challenge really is instinct. Where do you turn first for wisdom? Do you turn to yourself? Do you turn to people around you? Do you turn to the world? Or do you turn to God? The it's another place where the Old Testament gives us a great example of the people of Israel, where more than once the people of Israel would be in trouble and God would say, come to me, but they don't come to him first. They go to some other nation. You know, they go to the Syrians or they'll go to, you know, the, to Pica or Reason or whatever. But, you know, this time in Isaiah chapter 30, they're in trouble from the Assyrians are attacking them, threatening them. And so rather than turning to God, they turn to Egypt because Egypt is a strong nation. And as Isaiah chapter 30, God says, Woe to your rebellious children. This is the Lord's declaration. They carry out a plan, but not mine. They make an alliance. I'm sure it was a good plan. It just wasn't God's plan. They make an alliance, but against my will, piling sin on top of sin. Without asking my advice, they go down, they set out and go down to Egypt. Um, yeah, I won't go there. The, uh, um, no, one of, the, one of the finest Old Testament kings just, um, just lost his life because he, all his life he was so faithful to God, but just in that last moment he went to war when God said don't. George Barna told a conference, a Christian conference in Atlanta recently that America is a country in the spiritual crisis. And he says the core of the spiritual crisis is 
that Christians will take what they want to believe about the Bible and then they'll take what they want to accept in the culture and if the culture disagrees with the Bible, they'll just try to combine it and they'll still call it Christianity. This is as old as and as new as the Old Testament. Basically, it's we're going to take God's stuff if we agree with it, but then we're going to turn to Egypt and we're really going to trust in Egypt. In the midst of trials, turn to God. Ask him for wisdom. Jeremiah 29, verse 13 you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. It's the picture of whiz, hunger for wisdom. Are you hungry for God's wisdom? I'm not always. I can tell when I'm not hungry for God's wisdom by the way that I study the Bible in the morning. You know, I can study the Bible. I'm trying to read through the Bible in the year. I've, been, I've done that the last several years. And so what do you do? It's like I have all these chapters to read. I get through it. Checked off the box. Don't remember a word that I've read, but at least I've checked off the, off the box. No, I need to stop and be hungry. God, what do you want to teach me in this passage? Help me to meditate on some of the things, on what you want me to meditate on this day and change my life. You got to be hungry for his word, meditating on it day and night. Are you in a small group that is discussing the Bible together and applying the Bible together? Are you hungry for it? Or do you say, I have, I have so, so many other commitments. I just don't have time for that. Are you hungry to worship on Sunday morning? Are you hungry? I used to listen to sermons all the time when I was in junior, junior high and senior high. And I know you're thinking, Brett, and this is why you're weird and nobody likes you. But um, the, um, I, I don't know. I, was, I, was, I, was, I, I didn't read much when I was in school before I went to college. But I, I, could, I learned by listening. And I had um, a mentor who would give me her brother's sermon cassettes. You can ask your mom what a cassette is later on. Okay. Um, and I would just listen to him all the time. I'd listen to him in the morning. I'd listen to him getting ready for school. I'd listen to it at night. I'd listen to him while I was, you know, cleaning up stuff or whatever. I just loved to listen to him. And I learned so much. I can tell you what Scott Barchi taught about 1 Corinthians back in 1976, I think it was, or... Um, or anyway, so it's just like, I, it's, uh, um, and that wasn't the guy who's, I listened to his sermons, but anyway, and I learned so much just by listening because I was hungry for the word. And sometimes I've lost that hunger. It's like, God, make us hungry. You'll find me, he says, when you search for me with all your heart, where we turn. And be confident, by the way. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Be confident. Verse 6, let him, uh, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven back and forth by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Um, Ask with confidence, confident that God really does want to give you wisdom generously if you will seek him with all your heart. It's not something that is beyond you. Um, it is not something that you cannot reach because he, he wants to make you wise. So believe that he really does. But, but the, you know what the, the real acid test is? When he gives you his wisdom, you will obey. Asking for his wisdom without doubting means <laughs> the opposite of that. Asking with doubting means I will obey God if I agree with God. 
okay? God, give me wisdom. Well, God tells me I need to put him first in my finances and tithe. I don't think he really means that. I'm not going to do that one, you see. But if, if you only ask with a sense of doubting because you're not sure you're going to obey what he tells you to do and he gives you wisdom, why would you expect him to waste his time? Ask with confidence, and God, I am predisposed to obey. You tell me, I will obey. Finally, overcoming trials brings reward. Focus on your reward. Verse 12. Um, blesses the one who endures trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. What are you living for? You living for this world? You living for the eternal crown of life? When God looks at you face, when you see God face to face, and He says to you, "Well done, well done." Somebody said that God had one son without sin, but no children without suffering. If you follow Christ, you're going to get knocked down. Paul tells us in Galatians, let us not become tired of doing good, for we will reap at a proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Am I talking to anybody who's tired of doing good? But I can't tell you how many times I've thought about this passage. I've thought, yep. We get tired of doing good sometimes. And sometimes you just want to bail, just quit, just back off. But don't. Why? Because you will reap a harvest at the proper time, in God's timing, if you don't give up. I think about Pat Ferguson, who's been part of New Life for 30 years. And the number of times I've seen Pat, boy, we did a, we did a, um, a, um, capital campaign a couple of years ago and Pat just started to cry you know as he's on stage praying about it and I was just thinking those are the tears of somebody who has really sacrificed and is close to God and is thinking about that I think about Cindy O'Connor who's led our children's ministry for 30 years and what she's gone through seeing people come and go I think children's ministry is the most difficult. Min- I don't think there's a more difficult ministry than children's ministry. Talk with Carrie. Talk with talk with um, Cindy. They'll tell you the, they just don't want to have their phones with them on Sunday morning because they know that when their phone rings, it means somebody's sick and not showing up or somebody's kid's sick and they're not showing up. So. But can you imagine that reward of three decades of leading kids to Christ, teaching kids the Bible? My grandmother taught for, 50, for over 50 years. Can you imagine standing before God? She's gone to her reward. Can you imagine standing before God after decades of serving and sacrificing and hearing him say, well done. Blessed is one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. We don't live for this world. We live for the next and we keep our attitude focused on him. If you're not happy right now, can I suggest to you, it may, be, it may have to do with focus. Two men look through prison bars, one saw mud, the other stars. And so I would close with this thought. There's, some of us are old enough and traditional enough to remember an old song called Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One.
Uh, if you remember that, I am proud of you, and we're, we're in the same category of old and out of, not cool probably, but anyway. Uh, Bob Edmonds uh, was a psychologist that decided to do an experiment. He found two groups. One group didn't give thanks. The other group, he had write down blessings, things they're thankful for every day. And um, at the end of the study, it was clear the results. Um, one group that had given thanks every day was emotionally and physically healthier, more joyful, physically healthier than the group that didn't. The difference was not rich and poor. The difference was not the number of easy days or the number of difficult days. Hear me on this. The difference was not how people treated them. It's not like one group was treated better than another group. The, the single difference was focus. One group decided, made the choice to give thanks to God in the good and in the bad. You know what our parents have said for a long time is really true. Happiness really is a choice. Trials are inevitable. Misery is optional. Victory is possible when Jesus Christ is our Savior and we're walking with him. And our eyes are fixed on him. If your eyes are not on Jesus, let's turn our eyes to him. If you've never given your life to Jesus, let's turn our lives to him right now. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. I thank you that you're in this room. I thank you that your word is powerful and wise. I thank you that you want to give us wisdom generously and without being critical. Now help us, Lord, to focus on Jesus and to listen to his voice and to follow. It's through Christ I pray. Amen.